Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 10th, 2012. Have you ever prayed a quantum prayer? <laughs> oh, wait till you hear it today. Just can't make stuff up anymore. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy things being said. And what's causing all of this? Well, number one, it's it's a flat-out breaking of the first commandment, which we all do rather easily as a result of our sinful nature. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. See, people, you know, listen, you know, they, they look at the Bible and they go, oh, that's boring. I don't want to have to read the same thing over and over again. I mean, why can't I? Uh, why do you believe that God stopped talking? And I, my God is alive, so he has a lot to say to me. And and it's all kinds of stuff that isn't in the Bible, and that's more exciting than hearing all those old dusty Bible stories over and over and over again. So yes, yeah, <clears throat> now you'll notice that <laughs> yeah, I added a little attitude to that particular portrayal of the problem. But that's really kind of the nub of it. And it's the idea that, you know, listen, the God I believe in is so much bigger and better and more exciting and and more hip and doing stuff that, you know, than that God of the Bible. I mean, where's he been? I mean, for the last 2,000 years, I mean, last time we heard from him was 2,000 years ago. And, you know, I was... That's not that's not a god. That's uh that's an absentee father. That's not a god. That's somebody who's not really there. And so, you know, they they want to they want to push ahead, basically climb a ladder into heaven, force their way in and have direct experiences, experience God unmediatedly. I don't even know if that's a word, but you understand what I'm saying, you know what? <laughs> and you know, they they are sick and tired of just being confined by that paper pope called the Bible and yeah, but see, here's the problem. As soon as the Bible is no longer your authority, as soon as you don't believe that it's the living and active, inspired word of God, 
you start, well, careening out of control in many different ways. I mean, y'all, this is, oh boy, am I going to date myself here. (laughs) Y'all remember... Oh man, I hate even saying this. And y'all remember the uh, the the six million dollar man? <laughs> Doesn't sound like very impressive now, does it? Anyway, I remember watching this as a child on television when they were actually making new episodes. Oh, this is embarrassing. Anyway, the 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 point is is that the six million dollar man, the opening sequence, you know, that was you know with every episode. You know, Steve Austin was a test pilot, and he was testing some latest, greatest, state-of-the-art piece of of aviation, you know, uh, technology. And, uh, you know, and they show the airplane starting to wobble and get out of control. All of a sudden, it just starts spinning, barreling, and then, you know, into a fireball. Anyway, see, that's what happens. See, this that's exactly what happens to people when... They do not believe God's word to be God's word when they will not have their conscience bound by what God has revealed in his word. And so what happens is, is that it, it, you, know, you can go squirrely, you know, a, a number of different ways. You know, you could go emergent, postmodern, liberal. You could end up, in, you know, in, in the Patricia King camp and or you can go Mormon. It doesn't doesn't matter. The idea is, is that, you know. Uh, because the human heart is an idol factory and we are by nature at war with God, we want to make a God in our own image, you know, and so uh, you know, that's what all these things are. And you get some of the craziest stuff going on and it should not, ought not be happening in the Christian church because the Christian church is bound to, conscience bound to, duty bound to, truth bound to, what God has revealed about himself and what we learn in scripture about the one true God is, is that he doesn't lie. He's not capricious. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the word of God is sufficient. It's sufficient. You can trust it. And when somebody has run afoul of what God's word says, it doesn't matter if they say, well, God, the Holy Spirit told me this. Um, you can know with certainty that God, the Holy Spirit, did not tell them that. It's just that simple. And they can say, oh, how dare you? Well, yeah, see, well, no, actually, it's how dare you? Because you are teaching the your own dreams and visions and your own imagination and your own false doctrine as if it should be accepted in the church as Christian doctrine. And it shouldn't be. Within the Christian church, we are bound to... And must preach and proclaim the word of God, not your dreams, not your visions, not your clever notions and ideas. And everything gets tested. Everybody does. And if you don't pass the biblical test, your dreams, visions, and doctrines, well, they end up in the ash heap of history. That's where they ought to be. But they shouldn't be alive and well within congregations that call themselves Christians. So what we've noticed, uh, is, you know, I've noticed this over my lifetime, and even over uh, my radio career, is that there is a growing proliferation of just flat-out apostate, false, heretical statements, doctrines, concepts, methods being taught within the visible church. And I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism. I mean, I could probably dedicate an entire second program 
of fi- you know you know you know another three hours a day of fighting for the faith, just focusing on the the looniness that is within the Roman Catholic Church. But my focus is on those churches that claim to come out of the Protestant Reformation and are supposed to be places where sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, solo dea gloria, things like that are the are the uh, are, are supposed to be the governing ideas and principles within these churches, and they're not. Instead, you you've got really bizarre, peculiar, unusual, unbiblical doctrines being taught that have never been taught anywhere before, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and what happens is, is that it seems like the more bizarre and exotic the heresy, um, <laughs> the more somebody's able to garner for themselves a huge following of people who are delighted at this fresh, new, never before heard so-called revelation from God. But see, the thing is, is that it's not, it, it ain't that. And so this program, we slow down, we listen, we compare. We do the tests that these churches ought to be doing, but they're not, in order to help open people's eyes and to proclaim the gospel ourselves, to proclaim the gospel to those people who are caught up in a lot of these churches where these pastors are not teaching the truth. Why? Because we know that they are in peril. They are in eternal spiritual peril at the hands of these false teachers. And so everybody gets tested, even I get tested, and that's the idea behind fighting for the faith. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I mean, at the opening of the program, I asked the question, have have you ever prayed a quantum prayer? I mean, you just can't make stuff like this up. We're going to be uh, heading over to XP Media's website today and uh, listening to one of the channel hosts at XP Media Talk about a vision that she supposedly received about the importance of praying quantum prayers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you. In fact, hang on a second here. Before I do that, I, I I must play our standard warning because, listen, if if you're new to fighting for the faith, you got to understand something. Listening to this program can seriously be dangerous to your health, especially if you're you know. Um, you know, operating heavy equipment. Um, if you're at work and expected to be productive, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to not be productive. It could cause all kinds of problems. And so we have a standard warning that we play from time to time. As a result of what you're going to hear on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, the warning really applies at least to the first hour. In fact, let me talk about this. Where yesterday we didn't get a chance to do the Bill Johnson segment about how he explains how two visions by two different leaders can cause division or division. We got a we got a Will Mancini update about uncaging your vision, and then I got a weird one. This is kind of a more subtle one, but. Alan Hirsch, if you're familiar with him, he's a famous missiologist out there in the missional incarnational uh, uh, mocha latte movement. And um, he has he, – he, he's got a three-minute video called What is a Missional Church? And I, I, I throw this into the mix just because we're doing so much vision stuff right now. Um, but you, you got to hear this because this turns – his ideas about what a missional church is – are an invalid conclusion regarding something regarding the doctrine of God 
that leads to uh, basically turning you know uh, biblical theology regarding the church otherwise known as ecclesiology on its head and so but i want you to hear it and then what we're going to do hour number 2 we're <laughs> we're going to put away all the weirdness we we've had enough of that this week and we're going to listen to two really good sermons one by pastor Brent Kuhlman of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska, entitled What John the Baptist Confession Cost Him. This is a blisteringly great sermon, and I mean a law and gospel just straight up. I mean, 200 proof. It's wonderful. And then if you've ever wondered what uh, Lutherans, uh, how they handle the doctrine of election, we're going to be listening to a sermon by the uh, Reverend Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, entitled Praising God for choosing us, and the text for that is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So that's going to what we're going to do to round out the program today. Um, but like I said, because of what we're doing on today's edition and how weird some of the stuff is that you're going to hear, it, I, it behooves me to uh, play our standard warning. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Have you ever prayed for somebody down on the molecular level? I, you probably didn't know that you could do that. Well, here's Charlotte Buzigard of XPmedia.com explaining to us a special revelation she received from God the Holy Spirit regarding quantum prayer. Here we go. Hi, my name is Charlotte Buzigard with XPmedia.com, and today I want to talk to you about quantum prayer. Now, the Lord said that he has given us dominion and authority over all and that means all lately he's been giving me fresh revelation fresh revelation mm -hmm. do you really think that god the holy spirit is the one who talked to her and it revealed this to her regarding quantum prayer uh, when i uh, pray for someone who is sick let's say if they have a, a liver problem or uh, another organ that's causing them problems not only do i pray for that particular organ and covered in the blood of Jesus but lately what the Lord's been telling me to do is pray in a quantum level so now I'm starting to pray for that individual's molecules and atoms and cells and the entire molecular structure and uh, their their subparticles and their neurons and their entire uh, uh, DNA structure if you will now do you pray for their Higgs bosons I, I'm, I'm curious I'm coming at prayer from a quantum level and uh, I know that people are now seeing seeing results so we do have authority when the Lord says that he's given us dominion and authority over all again that does mean all so in your prayer time I highly recommend or when you are praying for others to come at it from a quantum prayer level approach where you right so if you're not familiar with all of the different you know molecular structures and how molecules and chemistry all works 
before you start praying for somebody, you're going to need at least the uh, the periodic table of elements and uh, kind of the latest physics books, you know, all the way down to particle physics and things like that. And maybe a good microbiology text talking about all of the different parts of the cell so that you can properly pray for every complex little micro piece of a person. Ask the Lord to saturate every single cell in their body with the blood of Jesus, all of their cells, their molecules, their DNA, their organs, of course, that you're praying for a particular organ. You know, see, now, see, that seems kind of backwards to me, okay? Here's the deal. The reason I say that is, is because, listen, all right, there's a saying, okay, you give a job to a lazy person and he'll find a quick way to get it done. So here's the deal. I mean, all of this prayer for th these really tiny little pieces of a person you know, like their bosons, their their neutrons, and their protons, and and yeah, and I mean, and the DNA molecule and stuff like that. Those are tiny little pieces. So let me I just work with my logic here for a second. So if I were to pray for the entire cell, well, that would cover all of that stuff, right? And then if I were to like, you know, maybe go a little bigger than that. So rather than just praying for an individual cell, maybe I can pray for like an entire limb, you know, of a human being. And so by praying for an entire limb and then covering in the blood of the lamb, then that would include everything in that limb that um, that would include, you know, muscle fibers, DNA cells, all of. In fact, you know what? That's not even big enough. I mean, if, if I were just to pray for the whole person then that would include all of their bosons, protons, neutrons, and things like that. So, I, you know, I'm just going to pray for the person and, and just let it all seep down to the quantum level. It's, you know, I know it sounds kind of lazy. I mean, but, you know, that's see, that's the thing. It's just, I'm just a simple guy when it comes to prayer, and I don't want to have to have a physics textbook open next to me while I'm praying for somebody. It just seems like it would get in the way or if you're coming against cancer or what have you, then, then curse the cells of, of, the, of the cancer that's in their body or curse the cells of the diabetes that are in their body and then and then ask for the blood of Jesus to saturate those cells. Well, that might be. I mean, see, I wouldn't want to curse the whole person. So, yeah, so if I'm going to curse something, yes, just curse. So it's, it's kind of like a laser way of praying so that you don't curse the whole person. Okay, I get it, yeah. Cells and molecules. And then also, I've been including for the frequencies and vibrations of their body to line up with the frequencies and vibrations of heaven. I uh, what? <laughs> um, there's body vibrations and frequencies that they're supposed to be in sync with with heaven. Well, how are we supposed to measure that? Our body is made up of various frequencies and, and vibrations that we emit. And this has been scientifically proven again. So think of when you pray now from a quantum level, including the molecular structure, frequencies and vibrations. We know that there's no sickness or disease in heaven. So you want to bind the supernatural health of heaven to the particular individual that you're praying for on earth you want to binding yeah so you want to use duct tape i'm a guy I mean, duct tape's important i mean when i bind things duct tape seems to be the thing that works for me so we want to bind the frequencies of heaven using duct tape to the person to their higgs bosons and their bind the frequencies and vibrations of heaven to the particular individual that you're praying here no matter uh, praying here for no matter what the ailment then the lord was also showing me to pray for people that have um 
mental issues, let's say those that have ADD, um, ADHD, and so on and so forth, autism, again, approach that from a quantum level, where in their brain you take authority over the cells and the... Uh, the so you take authority over the ADD cells and the ADHD cells. Okay. Um, um, really? Molecules in their brain, you take uh, uh, authority over the, the wiring in their brain per se. So when you pray for someone with... Oh, man. I mean, so now I got to go out and get a, like one of those anatomy texts before I can start praying for somebody so I can understand all the different pieces I'm supposed to pray for. Ugh. With, uh, with uh, various mental ailments uh, that we just mentioned, then go ahead and approach that from a quantum level. Do you really think that God the Holy Spirit spoke to Charlotte here and told her we've got to be praying for people on the quantum level? Um, yeah, probably not. Um, <clears throat> in fact, like highly, highly unlikely. I think if it's okay. In fact, I'm going to give you all permission. If you want to go ahead and just pray the old-fashioned way, praying for a person, and, you know, if you know something's wrong, you know, basically letting your petition be known to God the old-fashioned way without having to go into a quantum physics textbook or, you know, a, a, a human anatomy textbook and things like that. And, and in, in, I mean, even if you're, if you're bad at chemistry, you don't need to pray like this. No, 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 no. This is nowhere taught in the scriptures. We're not taught to teach, you know, to pray for people down on the quantum level. This is just, well, kind of like craziness. Anyway, moving along. All right, it's been a long time since we've done a Bill Johnson update. Truth is out there somewhere. Just so you know, the reason why we do the X-Files um, music for a Bill Johnson update is because nine times out of ten when I hear a Bill Johnson soundbite, I have no clue what on earth he's talking about. Like, none whatsoever. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right, let's uh, kill the music. All right, so here's, let me set this up for you. In, in a recent sermon preached by Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Redding, California, Bill Johnson is another one of these guys kind of in the Patricia King gang camp, you know, direct revelation from God and stuff like that. Well, the, the weird thing that he has in common, <laughs> odd here, with like Andy Stanley, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Ed Young, uh, well, Rick Warren, and others is, is that he's one of these vision casters, claims that he's received a unique individual vision from God for his church. And this is kind of like practical information about for, for you vision casters out there. You know, what do you do if somebody on your leadership team also has a vision from God? Of course, you believe that visions come from God. Well, here's Bill Johnson to explain what he does when that particular awkward, thorny thing happens or occurs, you know, when somebody on his leadership team also has a vision from God. Uh, here's Bill Johnson. I believe in vision. I believe in dreams. Let me give an illustration that will help me to get this thing kind of going today. My, Benny was reading uh, out of a book to me some, uh, some years ago about intercession. And these medical doctors, there was, they were doing a heart transplant. And they took 
the heart, it's beating. And they took another heart, and it's on the table, and they beat independent of the other. But when they touch, they both beat the same. There's something about the believer touching the heart of God that changes the way we function. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, that illustration, by the way, is not in the Bible. One other illustration as I try to get going in this. I've, I've made this known to you before. I, it sounds rude, and, and, um, and I, obviously I don't mean it in that way, but I, I sometimes will say things in a rude way just to wake people up. And uh, without, <laughs> without the intention of hurting feelings, but just forcing people to think. Because uh, it's important that we learn to think. God gave us a mind for a reason. And here's, here's what I'll state fairly often. When I bring somebody on the team, and we have the most amazing staff I've ever met in my life. When I bring someone on the team, let, let me refer to Danny. When I brought Danny Silk on this team. Danny is a man with incredible vision, unusual gifting, extreme grace on his life. It's, it's a no-brainer that God's all over the guy and uh, is going to impact the course of history through this man. But here's my approach. When I bring somebody on the team, I really pay no attention to their vision. Yeah, see, if if you were to go to work for the leadership team of Bethel Church and you had a, uh, you yourself have a vision from God, well, he, Bill Johnson doesn't want to sound like he's being rude here, but he doesn't pay any attention to your vision. Strange. Okay. So, you know, that that's okay. Let me back this up just a little bit here again. But here's my approach. When I bring somebody on the team, I really pay no attention to their vision. I ignore their vision until I know they have mine. Ah, so they'll ignore your vision. He'll ignore your vision until he knows that you have mine. It's kind of weird. Let me tie in tie this in a little bit here. Do you know that Perry Noble when he talks about critics and folks like that, you know, bloggers, people who live in their mom's basement, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, he basically says that he will not allow anybody to speak into his life unless they agree that he's had a vision from God, unless they agree with his vision. Weird that, you know, Perry Noble and Bill Johnson have such common ground here. We continue. Once they have mine, then I know theirs will complement mine. It won't divide. Dual vision is division. Yeah, see, you don't want to have two people with visions on the same leadership team unless they're both on the same page, because dual vision is division. Right. Well, I'm glad we get this practical information from somebody like Bill Johnson. Weird that it's not taught in the Bible, though, isn't it? Wherever there's two people, no matter how well-intentioned we become, when we fail to adopt the vision of those who have responsibility over us, then no matter how well-intentioned we are, whatever we do will actually undermine and bring division. The, the, Lord, the Lord actually illustrated this in a verse that, that is also another controversial one. So let's just make this a controversial Sunday. Um, I've, I've taken a bit of heat this week, so I'm, I'm kind of ready just to push it another day longer. <clears throat> this passage, he says... You either gather with me or you scatter. Um, do you think Jesus was talking about vision casting and things like that in that passage? You either gather or you scatter. 
It's like he's got this mission of bringing people to him. And either I embrace that mission and learn to dream consistent with his dream or all my attempts will scatter. These are just empty words and platitudes. Weird. Again, vision casting, nowhere taught in the Bible. He says he believes in it, but it's not taught in the Bible. Isn't that weird? Or all my good wishes and good plans will scatter. That didn't work on either side. That's, that's all right. That's, I'll just... Yeah, so the long and the short of it is this, okay? If, you've, if you're on somebody's leadership team and you have a vision from God, then the, the head honcho, the leader, is going to ignore your vision unless he's convinced that you've bought into his vision because if there's two visions, that causes division. And, well, you know what happens to people who cause division by not getting in line with the vision of the head vision caster, right? Sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you here to satisfy the leader's God given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. Yeah, so that's what happens. You get thrown off the bus if you're causing dove vision with your vision because you got to be in line with the leader's vision. Otherwise, if you're not in line with the leader's vision, well, then they don't have any choice. The only solution for that is to throw you off the bus. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Church. The management of Monty Python. 
Sounds Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge, and 40 healed doing the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Are you kidding? Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left with the arms, uh, nothing, nothing real effect, but then as soon as I just start, we start doing the whole, we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in, both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just feel, all of a sudden, it's like there was no pain, I said, and you said, start checking yourself, I just squat down. That's awesome, thank you, Lord, for new knees, in yes. Jesus' name, come on, come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple, of, about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore. Uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in. Take your whole head out and put it in. And you shake it, and you shake it all about. And you shake it, 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 and you shake it.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, the people who are claiming that they're receiving these direct visions from God, they're leading you astray, and they're not pointing you to Christ, they're pointing you to them. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you arrive there, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the homepage. Click on one of them. The uh, the one that says Join Our Crew, that's for you to sign up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. There's perks that go along with that from time to time. It's a good way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. From the CatalystSpace.com website, the headline reads, Uncage Your Vision. This is written by Will Mancini, one of the premier church consultants on vision casting in the seeker-driven movement. See if you can make heads or tails of this. Will writes, he says, Leadership conversations these days are laced with a common thread. We are rethinking the vision word we use so often in ministry. Like a burr under a saddle, something is irritating the collective soul of church leadership. Uh, It sounds like the collective version of existential leadership onks to me. But anyway, so what is it? Look closely at the introduction of current leadership books and you will see it. Listen carefully to the passion of today's emerging leaders and you'll hear it. The key word is unique. From within the conferencing era of the church, equipper, equipping leaders are diagnosing more and more the epidemic of photocopied vision and are repenting of, un, of unoriginal sin. <laughs> it's even written badly. Why unintentionally leaders have traded out a lion for a pussycat by taming the unique call of God for their church by a preoccupation with what is working down the street. In the opening of their 2008 book, The Intangible Kingdom, church planters Hugh Halter and Matt Smay tell the story of starting the Agilum community. What motivated them? Quote, we no longer could deny God's unique work among us. 
recently, Anthony uh, Coppage, a church media consultant, posted this comment on his blog. Quote, there are more churches contacting me who have lost their own identity in the race to implement the fellow back Grange Point church model. That's kind of a conglomeration of all the big seeker-driven churches. Uh, what model is that, you say? Why, it's the mashup of all the best practices of each of those churches distilled into an unreproducible, unauthentic version of their own church. At the first annual whiteboard sessions in May of 2008, Perry Noble told us a humorous story of refusing to walk up a gigantic hill to get his mail as a kid. One day, he decided to simply walk across the street and return to his mom with the neighbor's mail instead. It's just mail, right? Why not take the shorter path? That day, Perry breathed fire when he passionately urged church leaders to take the harder path of getting their own mail from God rather than reading another leader's mail. Perry calls us to find our own unique vision. You've seen this problem in many forms. If you want to experiment for yourself randomly, walk into a church in your town and see if you can tell which church conference the staff has been to in the last six months. I have found that it takes about five minutes. It may be purpose-driven banners in the foyer or cut-and-paste willow speak in the church mission statement, but you will see it somewhere. What's the cost of such practices? In the church leader's version of keeping up with the Joneses, we render vision impotent. When we duplicate a model rather than incarnating our own, uh, passion becomes derivative and conviction lie, lives secondhand. Vision is not simply simple, clear, powerful, but simplistic. Remember Dolly, the first clone sheep? She died at one-third life expectancy after developing arthritis and progressive lung disease. Oh, that's terrible. The good news for the church leader is that God wants to do something cosmically significant and locally specific through you. I believe that Jesus wants to release a redemptive movement with your local church at its epicenter. When that happens, your vision will be original, organic, bold, and extravagant. It will be unique since God never mass produces snowflakes, sunsets, or saints. Why would we believe that he's mass producing churches? It's time for church leaders to uncage their vision. <clears throat> Can I point something out here for a second here? Okay, this little argument right here. God never mass produces snowflakes, sunsets, or saints. Okay, you'll notice something that's missing in all of this. That would be any biblical text that teach that pastors are supposed to receive from God unique visions for church. You see, when you look at the church and you look at church history, God did exactly what these guys are saying God would never do. And that is, is he planted churches that pretty much all looked the same, did the same, and taught the same things. And it was those churches that didn't teach the same things or do the same things that were considered heretical throughout church history. In fact, the Jesus is the only one who has the authority to, quote, cast vision for the church. He's the only one who's capable and, well, who has the qualifications and is at the, the right pay grade in order to set the church's mission. And never before in church history has it ever, ever been taught that churches are to receive unique visions that are, well, original, organic, bold, and extravagant, and authentic, whatever all these words are supposed to mean. Anyway, 
this is a new teaching, by the way, that isn't taught in the Bible. And this little argument about God never mass produces snowflakes, sunsets, or saints, um, that's not a biblical argument. That's an argument, well... It's philosophical with some kind of a, you know, tiny appeal to, you know, the nature as a whole. But you see, if we're going to look for our theology of the church, ecclesiology, we must look for it in scripture, not in snowflakes. See, that's not an, you get what I'm saying here? This is strange stuff. Anyway, um, Mancini continues, says, It's time for church leaders to uncage their vision. So what does that look like and how do you start? Well, here are some ideas to get you rolling. So, I mean, are you are you a, a budding church leader? Are you ready to uncage your vision? Well, here's some practical steps for you. Ready? Uh, so uncaging vision begins with the vision of God. Okay? So finding your unique vision starts by worshiping and listening to the chief visionary. So remember that no better future than you can imagine was not already imagined in the heart of God. By the way, that's not a biblical argument, nor is that taught in the scripture. He started with perfection in Eden, and he will end with perfection in New Jerusalem. But you have your part in the story in between. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When was the last time you prayed to God as the ultimate source of vision? Where in scripture are we told to pray to God for vision for church that's supposed to be unique, authentic, and all that kind of stuff? Answer, nowhere. Um, Next, uncaging vision demands ruthless self-examination. So if you're not ruthlessly examining yourself, well, don't expect to, to get the vision. But anyway, he says, one definition of genius is the ability to scrutinize the obvious. Most leaders are so close to their community, both inside and outside of the church, that they miss the contextual and cultural cues that are essential to guide the vision discovery process. Where's the vision discovery process taught in the Bible? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's not. Anyway, the win is to answer the question, what can our church do better than 10,000 others? I call this your kingdom concept. How does your church specifically glorify God and make disciples? One key practice for self-examination is to invite a strategic outsider who can bring objectivity and honesty to the process. Next, uncaging vision requires robust team dialogue. Vision has been a long, uh, has been a lone ranger sport for way too long. Missional leaders are opting for high, a higher standard of team leadership that is practiced in community. It's only through brutally honest conversation and the blood, sweat, and tears of God honoring transparency that a team can forge a clear vision. As the, as the leader, are you allowing others to come to the vision table? Well, no, they're just saying they received a vision from God, and if you challenge the vision, they throw you under the bus. Anyway, uncaging vision involves meticulous articulation. Words create worlds. Every single word, metaphor, or story that drives your vision must be carefully created if you want to have a stunning impact. Of course, having the same statement on the wall is no end uh, is no end all. We all know that. But when I'm around great leaders with unique God-given vision, I'm always amazed by their carefully tuned word choice in my work with leaders we hold up five a five-fold standard is every aspect of your vision clear concise compelling catalytic or contextual where is any of this taught in the bible anyway next uncaging vision extracts significant time commitment 
Okay, the death blow to discovering unique vision usually boils down to time. Most leaders are unwilling to practice the above points because they are running so fast on a ministry treadmill. The few who get off the treadmill, however, always run faster and further for the mission of Jesus in the world. In the end, if you're trying to lead with someone else's vision, who's going to fulfill yours? The American dream does not apply to the church. Your church can't be anything you want it to be, but it can be everything that God wants it to be. Yeah, so there you go. Um, yeah, we've done some Will Mancini um, updates in the past, and gotta tell you, the, that's um, probably the, one of the most confusing things I've ever heard in my life. Where in the Bible is it taught that your individual congregation or community, to use their term, is supposed to receive a unique vision from God as to how to do ministry in the world? The answer? It doesn't say that anywhere. And this whole vision casting thing, this ain't from God. It's, it's really from the other place. Anyway, moving along, have you ever wondered what a missional church is? Um, we got all these weird, bizarre new words that have been floating around in the church leadership word world for a long time. And uh, Alan Hirsch is one of these church consultants who talks about being a missional, incarnational, mocha latte um, you know, community of things, whatever. Anyway, th this video I found instructive since we're talking a lot about vision casting today and stuff like that. This is one of the guys who's into the missiological vision casting thingy and about having a unique mission in the world. And see if you can catch, actually I'll point it out, but see if you can catch where this thing goes squirrely, Okay. Um, yeah, and, and don't just say, well, from the moment go. No, it's, it's a little more subtle than that. But here's Alan Hirsch answering the question, what is a missional church? Here we go. One of the great recoveries of doctrine in our day has been the doctrine, the recovery of the thing, what we call the missio dei. That's a kind of fancy Latin term uh, for what we mean is missional God. The word missio uh, is not just a great organization that you'll hear about here, uh, but also... Uh, it's actually the Latin word for the English word sent. Uh, the, actually, the Greek word is apostello, uh, the same word. But you can, you can then track what's going on there. But it, it's the sentness of the church, right? So, so what we say here is that God is a missionary God. And what we mean is that God sends the Son. Uh, God, in other words, the Son is both sent by the missionary God. He himself is a missionary and guess what? He sends the Spirit. He and the Father send the Spirit into the world. We discovered actually the Spirit is actually a missionary Spirit too. He's a sent one into the world with a purpose. Okay, you're going to notice something here. Okay, He's talking about really the do doctrines pertaining to the Godhead himself, to God himself. Okay? Now, what's weird here is that when we're talking ecclesiology doctrines regarding the church this is a well this is an awkward bizarre probably wrong place to start because if you start here you're not starting with clarity regarding the church you're starting with attributes or things regarding god and trying to then shoehorn them into your ecclesiology so when you're doing when you're doing theology biblically uh here's the idea clear passages govern unclear. 
And you got You don't want to mix metaphors, okay? That's this is something that's been happening a lot in the church lately, lady, lately that I've noticed, and that is is that people are doing bizarre things. They'll they'll say, look at we'll look at the doctrine of the Trinity, and because God is a Trinity, therefore um, we this is this then informs our doctrine of community. And you sit there and go, well, wait a second, can you really make that jump? You see, we've got a problem here. So if we're going to do Christian theology and we want to do Christian theology regarding ecclesiology, regarding the church, we don't necessarily begin with this doctrine that he's talking about regarding the, quote, missio dei. That's the wrong starting point. What we need to do is open up our Bibles and go to the passages that deal with the ecclesia, the church, and see what the clear passages say. Because here's the deal. The church isn't the Godhead. And um, not, yes, you get what I'm saying here? And so it, you, what you're doing here is you're basically engaging in theological philosophy in order to create a new ecclesiology. And the way you do it is by ignoring clear ecclesi- ecclesiological passages and um, and then make your philosophical theology regarding the Missio Dei govern. It's again, it's kind of subtle, but uh, I hope you're tracking with me. I'll, we continue, and I'll point this out. Uh, and as you hear from the text, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Damned if we're not all sent. Every Christian is a sent one. There's no such thing as an unsent Christian who does not participate in the eternal purposes of God in through the church. All of us get to play in that game. And all of us, in other words, it's an adjective to describe the nature of Christianity in and of itself. It's part of the doctrine of God, not just what the church does. When we've... He just admitted it. That's part of the doctrine of God, not what just the church does. So wait a second. The doctrine of God is different than the doctrine of the church. We tended to think about a mission. We think the church does a mission. People say to me, we're a missional church, and I say, well, okay, tell me why you think you're a missional church. I say, we do, we, we do a lot of mission. We, uh, we feed the poor, we're going to do evangelism, we do stuff overseas and all that stuff. I say, that's all impressive, but that doesn't make you a missional church. I say, really? I say, no. A missional church is one that allows the mission of God to determine how it is the church, both culturally and in other ways, as it engages. It allows missiology to determine ecclesiology. That's my geek coming out. You know? Did you hear that? It lets missiology determine ecclesiology. This then becomes, I know this is really kind of subtle and nuanced, and you know, it might be flying over some of y'all's head. Just work with me here for a second. That's ground zero for, you know, at least theologically, what's going wrong in these so-called missional churches. Is there not, they actually do believe that they're supposed to have some unique mission or vision in a cultural context. And the way they do it is by ignoring the clear passages of scripture regarding ecclesiology. Those get shunted to the side and instead they begin at the wrong starting point in the doctrine of God and somehow extrapolate out that's that this missial, this missial look at the Godhead, the doctrine of God then somehow becomes the premier starting point for understanding ecclesiology and this is this is not right this is actually really backwards upside down and wrong and not how you do christian theology why then 
as Stu asked me to do things. It's, it's how mission, our purpose and function in the world as God's people shapes the way we are, the nature of our being in the world. Missional church is a huge idea. And, and the idea is that it comes out of the doctrine of God, not the doctrine of the church. We've normally put it under the church. You can't, you, oh man, see. Now, so missional churches start with the doctrine of God, not with the doctrine of the church. That's, oh man. I mean, seriously, that's like trying to, to figure out the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, by looking at angelology. Somehow, you know, the doctrine of angels somehow is the first starting point when we look at soteriology. You're mixing theological categories and biblical categories that you ought not to be mixing. Because, But the reason why they do it is in order to blur clear biblical ecclesiological, ecclesiology doctrines and passages so that they can smuggle in their way of doing church by ha basically starting at the wrong point. It's not so much that the church has a mission, my friends, it's that the mission has a church. We are the result of God's missionary activity in the world. The church is the net result of the fact that God redemptively reached into our world and saved us, and he's continuing to do so in and through the church. All right, so there you go. That's Alan Hirsch. Now, I know that was kind of complicated, but it, it's, again, it's kind of working with a lot of the vision stuff that we've been working on here at Fighting for the Faith today. And I know it's somewhat complicated, and but my hope is that some of you are listening to this going, oh, okay, now I understand why they're doing what they're doing because they're starting at the wrong spot. Right. They're mixing theological categories in a way that they're not supposed to be mixed. And they're not engaging in sound hermeneutics by doing that because clear passages govern unclear and clear passages regarding ecclesiology govern what the church is supposed to do, not some abstract abstraction regarding the, the mission of God in the, in the doctrine of God as if somehow that then governs and literally creates the liberty for you to do church any old unique way that you want to because you have to do it in a unique missional way within a particular community. Does that make any sense? Maybe I'm maybe not. <laughs> Makes sense to me, but again, it's kind of complicated. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, we've got two really good sermons. You're not going to want to miss them. We'll end off on the good note uh, this week at Fighting for the Faith. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a nose across the USA, then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too, a bushy, bushy bond. 
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back in here. We're not done yet. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going to end the week off with two good sermons. <laughs> well, the bad ones this week have been really bad, so I need some good ones to kind of get me through. Let's cue up the music here. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got two of them. The first one comes to us via Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, Brent Kuhlman presiding. The name of the sermon is What John the Baptist Confession Well, what John the Baptist Confession cost him. The text for that is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Looking forward to that. And then second sermon is uh, entitled Praising God for Choosing Us, the Reverend Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. And the text for that one is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You ever wonder what Lutherans do with uh, election passages like Ephesians 1? Well, you're going to find out. So what we're going to do here, although I like this part... All right, let's kill the music here. 
All right, so what we're going to do is I'm going to read to you uh, the passage that forms the basis of the first sermon. It's uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Let me read this to you, and then we'll uh, listen to Brent Kuhlman's. I mean, this is blistering law, beautiful gospel. It's a great sermon, short, sweet, and really packs a punch. But uh, here's the uh, the text. Uh, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the text for this sermon entitled, What John the Baptist's Confession Cost Him. Here's Brent Kuhlman. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well, word about Jesus, his ministry of forgiveness and teaching, his ministry of preaching repentance, healing the sick, casting out the demons, making the lame to walk and raising the dead. This word about Jesus has been leaking out all over the place. Word of Jesus has been reached into the inner sanctum of the royal palace. The name of Jesus has become so well known that even the naughty, adulterous King Herod has heard. Now, word on the street is that this Jesus must be like one of the prophets of old, maybe Elijah. But others place their bets that this Jesus is, in fact, John the Baptist come back from the dead. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's the spin. After all, what else could explain the fact that this Jesus could do so many miraculous deeds? And so Herod himself believes this. He keeps repeating it to himself. John, whom I beheaded, oh my goodness, he's risen. Uh, that's got to be who this Jesus is. Now, if Jesus is indeed John the Baptist come back from the dead, Herod Herodias... And Herodias's lap-dancing daughter had better get ready for a heavy dose of sermons calling them for some big-time repentance. Repentance for their sick, twisted, freakish immorality and idolatry. 
After all, the king, King Herod, acts like he's God. He takes his brother Philip's wife to be his very own, steals her, and beds her right out from under his brother's nose. Yes, repentance. For being a drunken show-off at his blowout birthday party pash by making the ridiculous and foolish oath that he would give his pole-dancing niece anything she wanted up to half of his kingdom. That intoxicated idiot beat his chest before all his friends. His mafioso big-shot promise cost incarcerated John the Baptist his head. And then the severed head was brought up from the dungeon to be put on a platter for all the party animals to see and to cheer. And then more drinks to chug. And more cocaine to sniff. Talk about out-Hollywooding Hollywood. Out-soaping the soap operas. Stuff like this is very evil. Extremely evil. And so the last thing in the world that Herod and company want to hear is a <clears throat> another sermon from the Baptist calling them all to repent, you brood of vipers, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, however, is not John the Baptist, back from the dead, head reattached, and vocal cords resurrectedly mended. Herod is mistaken. Jesus is Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Even sinners who reject him, just like sinners who rejected the prophet Amos, who was sent packing. Amos, who was told to go home and never to come back, or else. In this Jesus, sinners, as the epistle said, have redemption through his blood. And through his Calvary blood, sinners have the forgiveness of sins, as the epistle said, according to the riches of his grace. Yes, word has leaked out about this Jesus who has come to forgive sinners right here at Trinity, where we worship him. We go to church to confess this Jesus who died for us. We are happy to repent. That is to say, we have great joy in Savior Jesus, who shed his blood for us, sick, twisted, curved in on ourselves, sinners. We know. We know that we are no better than Herod, Herodias, and all the rest. We too are rotten, dead in our trespasses, apart from Jesus. And so we are gathered every Sunday in Christ's name to use Christ and his blood against all our sin because it is his blood that is the detergent in our baptisms that washed us clean and provides us with a new birth from above. There's no sin that's too big for Jesus. Did you hear that? There is no sin that's too big for Jesus. No sin for which his blood did not atone. Consequently, we do not hold any of our sins outside of Jesus' forgiveness. To do that is to make ourselves into our own saviors, and that is absolute foolishness. Jesus instead is the Savior who took all of our sin in his body, yours, mine, and entire world full. Brothers and sisters, your sins do not belong to you anymore. They don't. Really. They belong to Jesus. And he has buried them forever in the black hole of his tomb. Brothers and sisters, there are worse things in life than being made shorter by a head. The worst, of course, is unbelief. Yes, unbelief. Purposely withholding 
your sin outside of Jesus' forgiveness. That will buy you a one-way ticket straight to uh, <clears throat> you know where. John the Baptist preached to Herod and all of us sinners like him so that he and we would repent of our sin and believe only in Jesus for salvation. John the Baptist endured mockery, prison, and finally a hasty in-prison beheading. Why? Because he confessed Jesus, the Savior, for sinners. And so do you. You confess Jesus as the Savior for all and for you. You confess what he has done for all and for you. You confess that he has given himself totally into death on the cross for everybody and for you, for the world's salvation and for yours. That is what you joyfully confess. Faith only speaks about what it has been given, given to by the Lord himself through his word. And so we Christians renounce the devil. We renounce all of his works and all of his ways. And we confess the Holy Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who gave himself totally for you with his name and your baptism. And what the Lord's given to you is certain and sure, brothers and sisters. Heaven is yours. Listen again to the epistle. Paul says, blessed are you. You have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God chose you in Christ before the creation of the world. He predestined you to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That's magnificent. Jesus gave his life for you and for your salvation. Now, I tell you, if you've been paying attention, you know what I'm talking about. Who knows what this confession and what this faith in Jesus will bring to you in your life. After all, if you're paying attention, it appears that the world in which we live contains many like Herod and his grudge-holding wife that cannot wait to bear their teeth against Christians. And then the promise that you all made at your confirmation to continue steadfast in, the, in this confession of Jesus and his church and to suffer all, even, even death, that may just stare you in the face quite soon. Well, come what may, Jesus remains Jesus, Savior of sinners, and you are redeemed through his blood. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Like I said, that, that one doesn't pull any punches. That is like in-your-face law with brilliant gospel. Man, love that kind of preaching. Very, it's very prophetic. Anyway, can't get enough of that. All right, moving along to our next sermon today. Uh, we got a sermon. This one is entitled Praising God for Choosing Us. This is a Lutheran taking a text regarding election. This, so this, you'll pay close attention and you'll see uh, how a Lutheran handles it slightly different than like a Calvinist does. But this is Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Let me read the text that forms the basis of this sermon. It's from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the text. Here's Ernie Lastman. Grace, mercy, and peace be from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our second reading. It's on the back of your bulletin for further review. My fellow redeemed in Christ, the doctrine of election or predestination is probably one of the most difficult, controversial, and least understood doctrines in the Bible. People are either confused by it, upset with it, or both. Indeed, I remember as a young man when I was first starting out to really read the Bible in a serious manner, how I struggled over this teaching as well. But we can't simply dismiss it for that reason. Paul's words this morning are very, very clear. And he means what he says. And this teaching of election predestination is found in any, many other passages of Scripture which are just as clear. So what's the problem? Why do Christians have such a hard time with this teaching? Well, I might not know all the reasons, but I know of at least two. First of all, we try to judge it with our human reason. And when we do that, it just doesn't make sense to us. Our human reason raises all kinds of peripheral questions around this teaching. Doesn't God love everyone? And doesn't each individual have to make his own decision whether he's going to believe in Jesus Christ or not? The doctrine of election predestination seems to deny those things. But my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that's totally the wrong approach. We're not to use our human reason to sit in judgment of what God says. We simply believe it because God says it. Whether we understand it or not is really irrelevant. God says it. And you might remember that this doubting of God's word and questioning of God's word all began with Satan in the Garden of Eden. And secondly, most Christians simply do not understand why this teaching of election and predestination is so important. Therefore, let us find out this morning how important that is, as Paul in our text is praising God for choosing us. Let's start with the basics. Isn't it obvious that mankind cannot overcome Satan and sin and death? Well, of course. But God has. God has. You see, that's the point. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. John 19, verse 30. Indeed, our salvation in Jesus Christ began not only before we were born. Our salvation in Jesus Christ began actually before the creation of the universe. 
That's what Paul says. I'm going to read the words again. And I want you to listen to each word carefully. I don't want you to think about peripheral questions. I just want you to focus on the words, and I want you to believe the words. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verses 4, 5, and 11. I would suggest to you those words are pretty clear. And if you understand them properly, very comforting. Because to begin with, this means that you and I aren't here on this little planet Earth by accident. We're here because God planned for us to be here. Before he even created the world, as he once said to the prophet Jeremiah long, long ago, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, since God knows all things, we should not be surprised then that even before he created the universe, he not only knew we were going to be born, he actually planned for us to be born and to come into this world. Even as Paul says, before the creation of the world, he already planned to send Jesus Christ to come into the world. Why? Because God knew before he created the world what would happen in the garden. He knew that Adam and Eve would bring sin and death in the world. He didn't want that to happen. But he allowed it to happen because he already had a plan in place to save mankind from sin and death. And that is sending his son into this world. You see, that's why then the prophets in the Old Testament could already speak about his coming. As we were reminded, as we just finished a study in our Sunday morning class on Christ in the Old Testament, they could talk about it because it was already determined in eternity that he would be coming. But there's more. Before the creation of the universe, God not only planned to send Jesus into the world, he also planned to give you faith. In Jesus. Before the creation of the world, God planned to give you faith in Jesus. That's what Paul says, if you're listening. That was all decided by God. Not only before you were born, but even before the creation of the world. Let me repeat just a part of it again. Listen carefully. Just believe the words. He chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world. And then what God had planned in all eternity, before he created the universe, just like every plan, he had to execute that plan, administer that plan, carry out that plan in time. And that's where the nation of Israel, the prophets in the New Testament, and Jesus come in. As Paul says in our lesson, making known, we wouldn't known about this plan unless he told us, making known to us the mystery of his will. We wouldn't know it unless he told us. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Yes, you know the Christmas story. That just at the right time, or to use the scriptures, in the fullness of time, 
right when he was supposed to come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. According to God's plan in all eternity, Jesus Christ entered our world of sin and death to save us from God's wrath with his sinless life lived in the place of our lives. His innocent suffering and death on that cross for our sins. And so you see, sin paid for, death defeated. And then on the third day, according to the plan, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And God did this all by himself without any help at all from you and me. We didn't do anything. And then before his ascension into heaven, our Lord Jesus gave the command to tell everyone about him, baptizing and teaching, so that through faith in him, people might have victory over death and eternal life in the resurrection from the dead. Which brings us once again back to our text And Paul is talking to you this morning, so listen again carefully to the words. Believe the words. Don't think of peripheral questions. Just focus on the words and believe them. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God so arranged your life that according to the plan, you would have contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through that gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit would bring you to saving faith in him, even it was planned from all eternity. Now that you have the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, he, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee. The what? Guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And what's that guaranteed inheritance? Why, the resurrection from the dead to eternal life in a new world. And you and I know that we have the Holy Spirit, otherwise we couldn't believe in Jesus. We can't believe in Jesus on our own power. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us to saving faith in Christ. So if we have faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's made us spiritually alive. And so Paul says that the presence of the Spirit in our life is the guarantee of what is still to come. You see, this is all God's doing. We do nothing. Everything is a gift from God. Jesus is a gift from God. Faith in Jesus is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. Eternal life is a gift of God. None of it is our doing. That's why I like that hymn that we sang just moments ago. Not unto us. Not unto us, O Lord. So then you see, our salvation, which began in eternity and which will end in eternity, is all God's doing. And this has some very important consequences. First of all, this means that we can be certain, 100% absolutely certain of our salvation from sin and death. No ifs, ands, or buts. God did it that way so that we could have comfort. Yes, comfort. It was Martin Luther who found out the hard way that an uncertain salvation is no salvation at all. How can you find comfort in something you can't be certain about? And so then, as you face death, how can you have any comfort as you face death unless you are certain, certain of God's forgiveness and the resurrection from the dead to a new life? And you see, we couldn't have that kind of certainty. If our salvation in any way, in the smallest way, depended upon what we did, 
Because we would always doubt whether we had done enough. Whether we had done it in the right way or with the right motive. My goodness, we can't even say one perfect Lord's Prayer. And if you don't know that, just try it. No, the only way we can find this kind of certitude in our salvation is because it depends on God. And God alone who's done everything, absolutely everything for us. So let me read selectively again from our text to remind you of this. Believe the words. He chose us. He predestined us according to his purpose, having been predestined according to the counsel of his will. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we hear nothing of doubt or uncertainty in these words, but only certainty. And I want to remind you this morning, as a shepherd of Christ, you can and you should be certain of your salvation from sin and death because it is God's doing. And you see, this is then your comfort in Jesus Christ. Who said from the cross, it is finished. And so then from beginning to end, our salvation is God's doing and God's doing alone. Therefore, you're not going to be surprised that Paul tells us in morning, guess who gets all the credit? Well, God. He gets all the praise and all the honor and the glory. And what do we get? We get no honor, praise, or glory. Again, that's what Paul says in our text. Listen again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. Verses 3, 6, and 14. Paul doesn't mention one word about our praise, glory, and honor, but only the praise, honor, and glory that is due to God because of what he has done for us. And that's why in other parts of Scripture we're told that we have no reason whatsoever to boast about God about anything. As Paul says later on in this same letter to the Ephesians, a text probably most of you, not all of you, are familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Yes, we remind ourselves that even faith in Jesus is a gift. That's ultimately what it means to be saved by God's grace. It's his doing. Remember, Paul has told us this morning that not only before we were born, but even before the creation of the world, it was God who decided, it was God who planned to bring us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's done that by his Holy Spirit through that gospel message and our baptism. And so then our boasting is never about ourselves, not even about our faith. But our boasting is always about God and what he does and what he gives Paul says something very similar in his first letter to the Corinthians. (coughs) Maybe you are familiar with this passage as well. Listen to what he says and how it fits in with what he says in our text. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence, in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him. You are in Christ Jesus. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 1, verses 28 to 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes I'm very concerned that 
Christians don't always understand why they come here on a Sunday morning, why they come to the divine service. Because I always like to think if they really understood what goes on here on a Sunday morning, they would be far more regular. Why is it that we come here? Why do we come to this divine service? There's two reasons, closely connected and intimately. First and most important, we come here to receive comfort. Comfort. The comfort of a certain salvation from sin and death by the forgiveness of our sins given through God's means of grace, the word and the sacraments. Let me say that again. We come here to receive comfort. That's our primary reason. It comes from a certain salvation from sin and death by the forgiveness of our sins given through God's means of grace, the word and the sacraments. And the second reason we come is intimately connected to the first and flows out of the first. We come here to give him thanks and praise and glory for what he has done and for what he gives. Yes, we come here to give him thanks and praise and glory for what he has done and for what he gives. I think that about sums up everything Paul says in our lesson this morning. Praising God for choosing us. Amen. And now the peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can't end a broadcast week off of, on a better note. The comfort of the gospel itself. The good news that you have been bought, redeemed, chosen by Christ and by God, and because of his death on the cross, you are forgiven and now have peace with God. Good way to end the broadcast week. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>